the holidays, he shared his thoughts on decolonization and the role of non-native people in the environmental movement. The event filled up very quickly, and so we're playing it now for everyone who couldn't be there in person. So I, I, maybe just to correct a little bit what you said there, because I don't feel like I'm here to tell to everybody what is exactly happening there and how they should plug in. Um, I think part of what I've learned there is to maybe construct what is happening here from a perspective of what I learned there, which means beginning with the uh, with my positionality that I am a white settler. And I think that's important to begin with saying that, that I'm a settler. And I think if you were not uh, native to this country, you are settlers, we are settlers. And I think part of what I would hope for in terms of thinking about this, uh, in terms of working with Surge, standing up for racial justice, justice is showing, showing up, showing up, <laughs> settling, uh, settler okay. showing up. <laughs> So I'm a settler showing up for racial justice, and I've heard, I did a lecture at EKU uh, a few weeks back that was focused more on police violence and that experience there. And so this one, I, I uh, shaped what I wanted, what you know, what I want to share around the idea of what can we learn from Standing Rock to do the work for racial justice, um, and that begins with with remembering who we are. And um, so I hope that's okay if you showed up for that slideshow. Of, of me and, and, and selfies of all of, of, of the each daily experience, that's not what this is. In fact, I also didn't want to begin with um, maybe just talking about who I am before I begin in terms of that settler status. Um, we are all settlers because I'm not native to this country, but also in a very uh, profound, uh, another sense, that maybe you are not, but I, my family's from South Dakota, and my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents came from Norway and Scotland, and through the Homesteading Act, got land. And they still have that land. So I benefit from that. I think we, we begin talking about our histories and who we are. And that's, in a short way, this is who I am. I am a, I am a settler in another way that we have family land that was part of land taken from the Sioux uh, tribe that are connected to Stand, Standing Rock. And also, uh, the pictures I'm going to show here come out from a very from a very different perspective too. I'm not here to do a documentary work, so I hope I was thinking of many people showed up here to maybe see a documentary style of what happened there. That's also not what this is. <coughs> Fun a lot if you're not interested. In that. <laughs> um, I was I went at an the first time I went actually I came through a long trip working uh, on a border convergence work and ended up at Standing Rock and I can explain that in a little bit because I connect that to the story. But then I returned at the invitation of Indigenous Rising Media and Jose Rivas. They work with Indigenous Environmental Network. So I came at their invitation. And that's really important when, you, when, when we get into what Standing Rock represents and how we show up uh, as settlers. Uh, I came at their invitation. Photography is something if you've been, how many people have been to Standing Rock? A few, three of you, okay. So uh, how many people know nothing about Standing Rock? Curious about that term. Everyone knows something about it. Okay, good. That kind of helps couch what I'm going to say to you along the way. But photography, you don't, you cannot take pictures when you show up at Standing Rock. You pull out a camera, you'll be escorted out of camp. Um, you go and check in, and there's intense interviews. And I think this is also recognizing our settler history. Um, and also, that's why I didn't want to do it this way. It's not about what I did, and, and I'm coming back. And this connects deeply with my work. I feel like in my work I don't take photos. 
wherever I work you know, uh, in activist communities, I make photos with the community. And so that's what they were inviting me into, was this opportunity to make photos with them. And when I got there, um, I wasn't sure what I'd be doing, but they asked me, as the white settler, to be a person that was able to take good photos and stand between police and the direct actions. So, and that became actually part of the trainings, to invite white people away from ceremony and as in solidarity to stand between the police and any of the prayer actions. And when they did that, the violence and the rest went down. Uh, as police encountered white people, they, they beat them up and arrested them fewer. In fact, I saw them break through lines to get at many of the indigenous organizers. So that's what I was there for. Part was to protect, but they also, uh, I remember at one meeting, uh, a, a white woman was complaining, why can't I be a part of the direct ceremonial action? And, and this, and this uh, Native person uh, graciously responded how grateful they were for this person showing up and for other white people showing up, or other non-Native people showing up who are willing to be there and take, take and feel what violence feels like. Because that's a daily experience in many, in many ways, that trauma. So that's my photos. Um, I took about 15 to 17,000 photos. I didn't get exactly how many of them are. And they're mostly of police violence um, against peaceful protectors. And so what I didn't expect was a lot of my work is not showing up at the New York Times or the Guardian. They're going to the Red Owl Collective, and now it's been renamed. It's going to go into a, a, the legal uh, collective to work on the, uh, the lawsuits at the international level and the state level to document what really happened there. So I that's why you will see also a few uh, photographs. And then one story before I turn to prayer, because that's another thing I wanted to construct this around. At the beginning of camp, the end of camp, beginning of any meeting and the end of any meeting was centered around prayer. And I'll share more about what that means. You don't have to be religious or believe in a God. Prayer is about reminding ourselves about who we are. So I want to do that here in a moment. But tell one more brief story about a photographer that I met and traveled with, and I saw her often. She worked for Reuters. So this is also the photographs I didn't take. And uh, we were going to Bismarck, the capital of North Dakota, to do an action. And we were not told what, where, what we were gonna, where we were going to go. We traveled in big, long trains all the way in, 100 cars rolling deep. Um, uh, police would often pull people off, and we were all still trying to stay connected and get there. And she was just complaining, why won't they tell me where we're supposed to go and where I need to be. For goodness sake, I am the photographer for Reuters. And um, I talked to Jose Rivas, who I worked with with Indigenous Rights Media. They needed those photographs in one sense, but they were very frustrated with her presence in camp. She would sneak into um, sweat lodges and take photos of ceremony and water pipes. No one was allowed to take photos of any ceremony or any prayer or prayer actions, and we were all told that. But these are things settlers do with good intentions, which ended up being bad things. Um, and so when we arrived at our site, um, the four directions, just like the four plants, tobacco, sage, sweetgrass, that are very important in all we did every day. We were reminded of our connections and our orientation to the world and to the earth and to each other every day. So we showed up in West, and we had our elder who was going to begin with drums and prayer. And she, again, I mean, she, she stopped the ceremony before we were going and says, where is the front line? I need to get there. And this elder said, you are at the front line. <laughs> and uh, she said, no, I mean the front line where I can take the photo that will tell this story. 
And this woman said, and she moved, another elder moved even closer, please, just, just join us here. Be present to this space. Don't worry about that. And she ended up running off and saying, you don't understand. If I don't take this picture, your story's not told. And um, she was a, a, I met her and talked with her. She was a nice, good liberal, white liberal. So, but she didn't get what I think Standing Rock has to offer us. Um, a different worldview, a different perspective to get beyond the way capitalism shapes us in our lives as producers and consumers and creates these identities. How do we break out of those and become present to one another as human beings? So these photographs represent that perspective rather than going there and documenting, it, documenting that piece as this is Standing Rock. It's my settler perspective being close to police violence um, and now I've come to share with you the big ideas that came out of that as they relate to uh, racial justice organizing. So prayer. Um, everyone, we would, I would often, I worked largely every day with the direct action camp, and so people could be doing all kinds of things. So it might, in the direct action camp, after the morning prayers around the sacred fire for the water, um, uh, after that ended at 8, I would show up in this zone. Uh, before it was, a, it was an army tent. Um, and uh, we begin talk. We begin with prayer, and it, it didn't have to be a native prayer. Often it was a native prayer or song, but everyone was free to offer prayer, whatever that was for you. Um, and uh, again, you didn't have to be religious or believe in any god to do this kind of thing. So today, my offering for you as prayer is to remember that today, 126 years ago, on this very day, December 20, or December 15, 1890. Sitting Bull was shot and killed by police at Standing Rock, and they remember that. Um, so I think part of, you see the themes of, this is the title for my talk, Beyond Solidarity. And I, I know Surge does a lot of solidarity work, so this is actually a critique a little bit of Surge. How do we move forward to the work of decolonizing and reimagining and remembering the work of becoming human? Um, so let's remember right now Sitting Bull, who was killed 126 years ago by state violence, by police that invaded his camp on Standing Rock. He was unarmed, and he was shot in the head at the age of 59 years old. And the reason he was shot, they say in the history books, we can go back and read some of those, especially to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz talks about this, where you could read about wounded knee and that story, because 14 days later, after shooting uh, Sitting Bull, it, uh, the soldiers went down to Wounded Knee and massacred 150 people, over 50% of them were women and children. And that was the, the biggest, infamous battle. It wasn't even a battle, it was a slaughter, a massacre at Wounded Knee. Um, so I want to read something from City Bull as we remember him and his words. This is uh, at the camp, actually, and this is Sitting Bull, an image of Sitting Bull on Brenda. Uh, White Bull, who's a great-great-granddaughter of Sitting Bull, and this quote is what I'm going to read you. And as you think about these things, uh, this is a, a person that was belong, these both belonged to the Indigenous Youth Council. They were key organizers. The indigenous, indigenous Youth really started Standing Rock in many ways. And uh, the Two-Spirit Camp was a very powerful camp there. People that represent the LGBTQ community, and they called it the Two-Spirit Camp. These were, they were amazing, brave warriors at the front lines along with the Red Warrior Camp, and many of these folks, over 550 now, since the beginning have been arrested. Many of them are facing felonies, um, and many of them have warrants for their arrest. 
Uh, so these are very strong and powerful pe people that to me represent uh, Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull wrote in 1877, he was killed in uh, 1890, Behold my relatives. I think that's one of the most profound things. Every day we greet each other's relatives. Right there is, we could just end our talk. <laughs> if we could learn to re re recognize one each other as relatives. I should have greeted you as relatives, I'm sorry. <laughs> my dear relatives, Sitting Bull said, Behold my relatives, the spring has come, the earth has received the embraces of the sun, and we shall soon see the results of that love. Every seed is awakened and so has all animal life. It is through this mysterious power that we too have our being, and we therefore yield to our neighbors, even our animal neighbors, the same right as ourselves to inhabit the land. Yet, hear me people, we now have to deal with another race. Small and feeble when our fathers first met them, but now great and overbearing. Strangely enough, they have a mind to till the soil, and the love of possession is a disease among them. These people have made many rules that the rich may break, but the poor may not. They take their tithes from the poor and weep and support the rich and those who rule. They claim this mother earth of ours for their own, and they fence their neighbors away. They deface her with their buildings and their refuse and garbage. The nation is like a spring river flooding from melting snow that overruns its banks and destroys all that is in its path. We cannot dwell side by side. Only seven years ago, we made a tre treaty by which we were assured that the Buffalo country shall be left to us forever. Now they threaten to take that away from us. Sitting Bull had also said at one point, um, they've made many promises to us and they've only kept one. They promised to take our land and they did. So we remember Sitting Bull, who many at the camp remember as an important per, uh, person through their ideas that reflect on what is happening, happening now. Thanks for listening to Power to the People with Central Kentucky Surge. We're sharing a presentation by Steve Pavey, a local photographer. And next up, he tells us how his work led him to Standing Rock. So um, as I transition uh, here, um, I, I think it's important to talk about how I came to this camp, um, just really briefly. It was two months on the road that I've been gone largely, and I started by uh, and actually before that, I started in Palestine for five weeks. So in my mind, I was in the West Bank with Palestinians and that occupation returned. And I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, just days after a police officer shot and killed uh, Keith Lamont Scott, the Charlotte Uprising. Traveled through the South, visiting and documenting communities that I've worked with, hearing about the detentions and deportations, and down to the border that looked like Palestine uh, with the same equipment, the same uh, militarization of the border, 70 miles even in, where most, most immigrants die, visited the graves of, un, of unknown migrants buried, who no one knows or will remember. And then at the border convergence, we were there, and part of that border convergence uh, where people met on both sides of the Americas, but the issue of, of the uh, militarization of the Americas and the, and, the, and the economic colonialism that's present, 
We were on Totobotum land, and the, our government wants to take their land to build drone towers to further militarize those borders. And so with that awakening, I was supposed to go to Phoenix to help <coughs> stop the, the, uh, the election of Sheriff Arpaio, which was connected to fighting Trump, and that uh, they had lots of support, and it just felt too easy, so I went to Standing Rock because I was hearing reports of friends that were there with the Rocket Society. And so uh, these things are all in the back of my mind, but rem and, and Standing Rock helps explain all of these things and brings them, to, brings them together. These things are deeply connected. Um, and so I want to turn to a quote from uh, one of my heroes and prophets, uh, James Baldwin, because it's what I remember when as I was making these trips, I was returning my mind to an article he wrote in 1967 called A Report from Occupied Territory, which was Harlem, where young people had been shot and killed by police. And in that, he writes, your history has led you to this moment, and you can only begin to change yourself by looking at what you're doing in the name of your history. In the name of your gods and in the name of your language, you keep saying, what does the Negro want? He's responding to a white person that was in this uh, meeting, you know, was asking him, what can we do? It's a summation of your own delusions. The lies you've told yourself, you know exactly what I want. <coughs> that's what I'm learning from Standing Rock, and I think that's the work we at Surge need to begin doing, is begin telling the truth about the lies we've told ourselves, and facing our delusions and illusions about who we think we are as America. Whether we were great before, or great now, or ever great, from either party's message, these are lies and part of the mythology that, that Stanislaw is telling us we need to uncover and start beginning telling the truth about. When I first pulled into Standing Rock on my first trip, it was at 8 or 9 o'clock at night, it was dark, and when you pull in, security may let you in or may not let you in, they usually let you in, um, and that's the line of these flags going all the way down. And there's now over 300 flags from indigenous nations in the United States and around the world. And right when you come in on the right, there's the sacred fire, the seven, the seven council fire, which has been extinguished now. And another fire called the uh, uh, All Nations Fire has been created. But around this fire is where uh, prayers are, are, are around the clock. Uh, well, you're supposed to go to bed at a certain time at 11. Um, and they do monitor that. But there's still a fire keeper caring for the fire. So I pulled in just past the fire, went down this little hill, pulled my truck up on this little bank so I could fall asleep in my, in my chair comfortably, um, and cracked the windows a little bit because it was only down to the 40s at that time at night, um, and fell asleep to drums and prayers because um, I was tired and exhausted from the long trip. And then this hip-hop beat came on, and I kind of woke him from my slumber. And this hip-hop, old-school hip-hop beat, had to it um, this spoken word poem from John Trudell, who just died a few years ago, He's a Native American poet and activist. You should read his work, it's really important. And his, it's about a 15 minute spoken word wrapped in this hip hop beat. And you can Google it and read the whole piece. I'm just gonna read a section of it. This is an indigenous voice talking in the way that Baldwin did and Sitting Bull did. It's entitled, No More Illusions, We Are Power. We must be willing in our lifetime to deal with reality. It's not, the ref it's not reform we're after, we're after liberation. We want to be free of a value system that's been imposed upon us. We do not want to participate in that value system. We don't want to change that value system. We want to remove it from our lives forever. <coughs> this is liberation. 
We want to be free, but in order for us to be free, we have to assume our responsibilities as power, as individuals, as spirit, and as a people. We're going to have to work at it. We're going to have to be committed to it. We must never underestimate our enemy. We must not become confused and deceived by their illusions. There's no such thing as military power. There's only military terrorism. There's no such thing as economic power. There's only the economic within these illusions. So we will believe they hold the power in their hands, but they do not. All they know how to do is act in a repressive and oppressive way, a brutal way. This is Standing Rock. This is kind of building up layers to it. So I'm done with that kind of little introduction and I want to introduce you a little bit to uh, Standing Rock so you're not too disappointed. When you first come into camp, uh, it's a, you can walk around and across camp in 15 or 20 minutes get across camp and it swelled to up to, they say, 15,000 at one point when I left at Thanksgiving time. And it's down to about 1,500 according to, I think, most reports that I've talked to, 300, 300, maybe 1,000 in, in three different camps. Um, and uh, when this dome was built while I was there to facilitate the communi communal meetings. It also was a very warm, warm place to get. And this is a sign, you're not going to be able to read it from there, but so I'll read it here in a little bit, about the principles for direct actions. But many, it was actually also the principles for how we conduct ourselves at camp. So uh, when you come into and go into that space, for the very, that was the next day I got up and I went there, and Johnny's always conducting the meetings. And we go through, and uh, everyone's allowed to speak in a consensus way, not in this very colonial white settler way we're doing tonight. Um, <laughs> everyone is allowed to talk, and, and we go through consensus, and there's invitation, relatives welcome to camp, and there's two agreements that we're asked to commit to. Um, and we can always argue over it if we want. And the very first commitment that you make when you come into camp is that we are all water protectors, not, prote not protesters. We are protectors. At the very beginning, we are protectors, not protesters. Everyone's asked whether they want to agree or not to agree, so this is why we're all there. And we're reminded every morning, like at 5.30, you know, this guy gets on the intercom and says, Wake up! Wake up! Dust off your Bibles! Shine your crosses! We have work to do! And he's like, we've got to kill the black snake! And then he goes through all the different, different people groups that might be there. But he's challenging people to come out to the ceremony, um, because we are there to protect the water and destroy the black snake, and the black snake is their word for the pipeline that's coming through. And the people that are putting it through in that way of life, that's the black snake people. That's important, I'm gonna come back to that. The second commit, the agreement that we make is that we are all two-legged. And he makes some jokes about that, but that is a native word for a human uh, at our basics. So we must all agree that we are two-legged including the police, including the people all around us. And there's this invitation to recognize that we are humans because we need to become human and treat others as humans, including those who are holding guns and shooting us. So this, these are the, this is the core philosophy of the camp, the core value system of the camp, is to be in right relationship with one another and with Mother Earth as the two-leggeds working to kill the black snake um, and protect the sacred water. Um, so this is the problem that we face, I think, the big problem that we have to do with our racial justice work, is to remember who we are. We have this narrative and story of who we are, shaped largely by colonialism and capitalism, 
And how do we get back to recognizing our humanity and the humanity of the other amongst us, including our enemies? Um, I was reminded, a part, another prayer to throw in, of when, there's a Wendell Berry poem that I love on, on how to write a poem or how to be a poet, and in it he says, there are no unsacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. I feel like this prayer, this poem, really summarizes what we were there for, and what, we, what we were doing there, and what that means for us now. If we could daily wake up to that and remind ourselves, this is the work we have to do, is to work on fighting against those who are desecrating lives and places. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the black snake real quick. Um, this is, uh, some of you will, will, at the end, I'll kind of do an update. But I think this is really important to talk about how people interpret the black snake. So I don't know if you all follow social media uh, on this issue, but it's often confusing, especially being uh, far away. It was confusing being there because, uh, in fact, someone wrote me something yesterday. Could you tell me the representatives of uh, Standing Rock so I could get in touch with them? I just laughed. like, representatives? What do you mean? The chairman of the Sioux tribe? No. It, this is very consensus. Anarchy. Like, this is this, is this social space of allowing people to step up. And, there's no leader. We were all leaders and called to be responsible as leaders. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of interpretations of why people are there. And I think they said they help. I think they, we can help understand the differences in terms of how we relate to this thing called the black snake. Uh, so at one level, the black snake is literally that pipe that's going there. And so we were all there to stop that pipe from going underneath the river there. Because that pipeline was at one point scheduled to go north of there through a white community near Bismarck. So I think that's important for people standing up for racial justice to recognize this happens to people all over. That when indigenous environmental problems and issues almost always affect people of color, people on the margins, whatever the environmental issue is, more than white people. And so here's the case of, again of a pipeline moved and we were there to say no, we don't want this pipe going through Standing Rock land. Uh, we just, it can't, if, it, if we can stop it from going there, that's a win. And we kind of heard that. There was a win. It's not a real win, but we heard say that from Obama's administration that there's a delay on that drilling under the river. So that's one battle, stopping that drilling under the river. But there's another battle that isn't often talk about, talked about, I think, in that win, and that has to do with the battle over indigenous rights, treaty rights, sovereignty rights over land. And then we have to pay attention to history then when we do that, right? I recommend everyone read that I already mentioned Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, uh, uh, A Indigenous People's History of the United States. You, we must read that in order to understand what that battle is and struggle is to stop the black snake. So the black snake is more than just stopping the drilling under the water. It's about stopping and maybe recovering or doing the work about addressing rights <laughs> and, and, and stolen land. So that issue is there, and there are some people there for that reason. This is Central Kentucky Surge, and you're listening to Power to the People. If you're just now tuning in, we're listening to a presentation by Steve Pavey about his time at Standing Rock. Coming up. He discusses the many different motivations that led people to the camp and how they work together to protect the nearby river. But there's uh, another reason uh, there that I think is even the more complicated one, 
And I'm going to say this here amongst this group because I don't know if Stan Rock would have, would have happened to the extent it has. That's just my theory. It's like we're wrong. If it hadn't been for the environmental crew and all their money that came in. But, and they were led, uh, I mean, Bill McKibben was there, 350, I mean, met him, and, and all the big environmental climate change people were there, but they were in the background because the face of the environmental movement was Dallas Goldtooth and Candy Mossett, who are, are running the Indigenous Environmental Network. And so their goal when they're there, they, I'm, from me talking to them and reading, I don't think they would say this because I think this is meant to be nuanced. There's multiple battles, and this is all standing rock. It doesn't mean there's one right or one wrong. And so another battle was to simply stop all oil coming from the ground. It's a battle about keeping fossil fuels in the ground. So that's another battle, another layer of this fight and why we're there. And why, when everyone has left, that you hear that the, you hear on the on media, the, the big media is left. They call this a win. I don't see that on big media. But on social media, you'll still see there's a fight to be fought. There are well during its standing rock, Obama's administration approved two more pipelines down in Texas that they're building right now. There's drilling happening every day in this country. There are spills happening every day in this country. Well, they say every five days in this country still happens. Um, so that's another layer of the battle. And everyone is there for different reasons, so it's very complex. So I want to leave you with this complex picture. And the fourth thing, which I, think, I personally think is the most important because it embraces all of those, and we don't hear enough of, and I think it's the people that have been left at the camp, who have started the White Nation camp, and they're, they're saying, you know, I honor the chairman and what he did and why he did do what he did to make it safe here. Um, so it's not like that kind of argument, but saying, we're still saying um, because we're here to fight the black snake in terms of a way of life. And let me quote one of the youth to better understand what he's saying. The black snake is more than just that oil in that pipeline. It represents unemployment of our people. It represents the unhoused. It represents the undereducated in our community on the reservation and across the United States. The black snake needs to be killed here at Stand Rock, and not only here at Stand Rock, but everywhere. This is a struggle for us all in the United States to fight this oppression. So I, and I feel like that call is a call to do the work of decolonization, which is a big word, it's a hard word. Maybe search can do maybe two or three workshops to help us understand what it might begin to decolonize. But I'd like to offer you three uh, things that come out of Standing Rock for me to help us move towards that decolonization process. And I think the first part of it is just having these discussions and remembering our history and remembering who we are as a people. That slide just kind of sums up what I felt like that fourth camp or that fourth idea was. I'm going to leave these up. It's the last slide. Um, I'm going to let them kind of just marinate to, with one another in your minds as I share these last three things about decolonization. Um, I chose them intentionally around color and black and white and also the way they're arranged. They are representing the extent to which the, uh, folk, the water protectors met state violence, police violence. Um, these are just a few, one of the images, two of the images really. They represent what the police and what our, our, uh, what our state wants to protect <coughs> Wells Fargo. If you, uh, there's a call tonight at eight o'clock on national search. 
And there's a, there's a National Day of Action next Tuesday. Um, and part of that is about disinvesting from the investors in the pipelines. Um, and Wells Fargo is at the top of the list. Uh, when we come into town, they're there to protect police interest. The police were not there. This is how we were met with water cannons on that, that, on that horrible night of the 20th, uh, or mace, uh, very sprays, pepper spray. The violence was incredible uh, that I experienced there. I shared with someone else uh, that the only place I felt more dangerous, and I've traveled in over 30 countries, and very dangerous one was Honduras when we had to take land with, with uh, the Griffin there there. I felt safer when I was in Palestine, to be honest. These are the kind of forces that we were meeting there um, and felt very dangerous. Um, and you can see, the, I'm surprised no one has been, was killed from that event. Um, I think we were probably headed that way. Um, one quote before I start sharing those stories from Rose, Roxanne Dunmar Ortiz, and this is the talk I gave at EKU. And um, so I'm not gonna go into more of it tonight, but I think it's important to recognize as we think about what settler colonialism is. She says, it's an institution and a system that requires violence. And when we say violence, I mean the kind that comes from people that are wearing badges that connect, that connect us to our, our nation states and our states. Capitalism, settler colonialism requires violence, or at least the threat of violence to attain power. People do not hand over their land, their resources and children and futures without a fight. And that fight is always met with violence. And employing the force necessary to accomplish its expansionist goals, a colonizing regime, which is what the United States is, institutionalizes violence. And she doesn't say this, but we call this law and order. And that's why it's so difficult to fight, because we call this law and order, and who wants to be against law and order? But this has been, in my mind, in, this is institutionalized violence to exploit labor and land. Um, so I'll go on from there. I believe Standing Rock is the moral compass. It's that big, I think, for, for where we are to head, especially in light of these times. It is the moral compass. It's a grounding for reminding us Black Lives Matter in that big document was really important, but this is more deeply grounding. In fact, in that first picture I showed you, that picture, I wanted to talk about it, I'll go back to it, that in that picture you saw a Black Lives Matter representative there in solidarity behind her brown berets and the American Indian movement. People are coming all over in this, we call intersectionality, but seeing how this grounds people's work so that we are fighting less for reform and more for liberation and getting at root causes. And the root cause is recognizing that we live in a settler colonial system. That's what Standing Rock has to teach us. Um, three things. One, they have to teach us is the importance of prayer. And I know that might sound really weird. It felt a lot of weird for a lot of people here that, were sh that showed up that were not religious. Um, but <laughs> prayer is a, was a grounding thing folks did to remember who they were in relationship to one, to one another. Um, it was less about words and more about putting yourself in, into an orientation to be in a state of prayer. And so we were not encouraged to ever go to the lines, the, front, the, the, the battle, or where there was prayer actions, where there were police. And thus, we were in that spirit already to put, our, put ourselves in that spirit. I wish I could tell you about the stories that Native people, Indigenous people, and other people that were sharing about the trauma. So there are a lot of folks that are dealing with trauma, and you can't go there unless you're in that space, because hate is an easy thing to go to on either side. And so for me, prayer, as I began hearing about beginning things in prayer and ending with prayer, 
It was about grounding my soul to be connected to other human beings and Mother Earth who often touch her. And I remember this relationship was sacred and how do I learn to love that person next to me, that land under me, that sky above me in all directions. This was the work of prayer. Um, one young indigenous youth, when uh, a group of white occupied people showed up and said, why are we praying? We need to get to action. And she got so angry because they had not been there for the, their entire time. And she put them in their, their place. She said, I, I, in a spirit of prayer, have been maced and tear gassed and shot with rubber bullets. It was on our treaty camp when I was there. They built a treaty camp right on the pipeline where they invaded. And um, they removed her out of, not a sweat lodge, but a, a ceremonial experience in the teepee. Brutally arrested her. She's facing felonies. And she says it was in a spirit of prayer that all of these things happened. Prayer is dangerous. That's what they're afraid of. And so when we were on mines, people would sing songs. People would speak to people because their hearts were centered and ready to be there. A lot of people were often singing, often the pigs too, but it was largely, I, I was there. There was less of that and more of people praying and singing and speaking words into these officers. And so there were reports of officers crying. And uh, only five to 22 badges have been turned in that I know of have been documented. I think largely the people there have come in because they want to be there either to beat up on people of color. We know that from like what the KKK has done. There's reports back 10 years ago saying, this is what you should do is go into law enforcement. It's a legal way to do this. Um, but the second thing is overtime pay. I don't know, uh, they're both very bad, huh? Well, maybe not. Maybe people need overtime pay. But people are showing up for, for money on those lines and to also have a chance. I have some of the pictures I wish I could show you of, of this one often, uh, white cop at the very front. And there I was laughing at him because he was saying things. I don't know what he was saying, but he was taunting with his baton. And they would grip these batons and be just ready and anxious and looking forward to on many of them. Other people, I wasn't sure why, you know, they were nervous. Why am I there? But this, she says, this is an indigenous spiritual movement. And this is very important, and I'll explain at the, in the last thing why I think this is important. The second thing is that uh, what this movement does at Sandy Rock is that it recenters the conversation we have in our movements around indigenous voices. And indigenous voices, I think, are too often forgotten. I've been involved in movement for a long time, and they're rarely ever raised. When we heard the debate between Trump and, and Clinton on that fourth debate, when they were supposed to talk about race, not one word was mentioned about indigenous people. It was about black people, which is important. But indigenous voice, voices have largely been ignored. And I think what Steny Rock does is help us recenter our conversations about racial justice and environmental justice and about homelessness and poverty around people who experience it at possibly a deeper and stronger level, particularly women and children. We, I saw that and heard those, those stories, how deeply, and people would show up and, give, and talk in places and refer to themselves as survivors, survivors of genocide, people whose lands have been stolen and they've survived, people who are, it depends on the year, but in, uh, we hear about the police violence against black men, but uh, given the year, Indigenous men and women are at higher risk of being shot and killed by police than black men. It goes back and forth over the years. Indigenous people face these extreme issues of police, or state violence, of homeless, uh, which I think state violence has homelessness and poverty. When you look at the poverty rates of Standing Rock, they're something like 78%. These are people experiencing 
deep and multiple levels of oppression and violence in their lives. And they have uh, much to teach us about how we do our work in other, in other issues. And so I think that's a really important part of this movement, is that movement people are going there. There's connections being made. The future will, the way we organize the future, I believe, will be very different. Um, there'll be more indigenous voices in all the different movements that we're, 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 we'll see emerging um, in, as we move forward. One indigenous voice, though, I thought was very, very insightful, said to me in one of our conversations, is that we must be very careful, though, about this whole liberal talk about intersectionality. Because she says, I see too many people coming here with their issue to connect to mine, and they miss the bigger picture about de the work of decolonization. So people are showing up to say, this is only about keeping oil on the ground and not recognizing the bigger picture. People are showing up only about this, their issue. And what she's warning is, we need intersectionality. This is very important. But we need to understand, where does intersectional analysis lead us? What battles will we be working on? Because typically, I think, particularly in the most of the nonprofit liberal orgs that I've been a part of, we compartmentalize issues and don't connect them. And then we get in the work of looking for petitions and policy reforms, and we are complicit with the very system that's producing this kind of violence. And so we have this to learn from them, that this intersectionality is a deeper understanding of intersectionality because we understand the real enemy and what we really need to do, what really needs to be done is not just more reforms and getting the right Democrat on your, you know, in your pocket to lobby and to get this done. Um, I work on a lot of immigration issues and it's been horrendous. And the big movement with indigenous youth, learning and working with uh, our undocumented youth with indigenous people is to break from both parties and to move towards saying that this immigration form is a part of the colonial system and we found another way to terrorize people and, and police them through detention and deportation and that border. The third piece, and the last thing, and we don't have time for this, and this will be maybe an entree into Surge offering a bunch of workshops on how to decolonize, um, and why I think this spirituality is so important in the first point, is that um, we, the real issue is this work of having to understand that we live in a separate colonial society, and that there's a political economy shaped by the nation state is a, is a modern invention and uh, capitalism is a modern invention, it's, it's old. But these things, in my mind, this is my, going back to my 20 years ago work in Hong Kong, actually, this is hard to, how do I sum all the Marxists and all these neo-Marxist, critical Marxist terms, yeah, but Stanley Rogers helps us understand that, um, I think this spiritual piece, that I, capitalism is a spirituality, in my mind. That's what I've written about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. We don't, under, we don't understand and we're not, we, we live in this world that James Baldwin says of illusions and delusions. There are forces shaping how I relate to each one of you. There are forces relating to how I relate to this building and the land and resources. We are shaped as producers and consumers by a philosophy or a spirituality that we're unconscious of. And so I don't know who you are anymore as a human being. I only know you as the job you have, the money you have, the degrees you've gotten, the things that this political economy shapes us by. But we're unconscious because we, we are born in it, we're raised in it, we're educated in it. You get it at school, church, mosque, everywhere you go. This is the stuff that we, the soup we live in. And Standing Rock 
is saying we need to get out of that soup. There is another way of life to challenge how we relate to one another and the land and resources. And we need to, that work of decolonization is beginning to rethink how we relate to one another as human beings and how we relate to other kinds of resources. We're deeply, to use a Marxist term, deeply alienated. I like that term. We, do, we, are, we are even, we're alienated from ourselves. We don't even know who we are. This is the spiritual work that needs to be done. I learned at Standing Rock. Learning who we are as human beings. Um, and, uh, and especially the people around us. Um, I think I'm gonna just end with that. I'm gonna end with a prayer, because I saw we're very close on time. Everything we did there was starting and ending in a prayer. And my prayer comes from an, an Indian woman named Naomi Shihadnai. And it's a poem that I've read so far in all my talks at the end. Um, it moves me, um, and it's called Kindness. And so we talk about this abstract thing called the nation state and state violence. Violence has always felt viscerally and very personally in people's bodies, often as death. But many forms of homelessness, as, as, as being shot, so many forms of this. So maybe this is an easy entree into how to decolonize, is to think about how to become kind. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. And before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he or she too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept her alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. And then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes in the morning and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I've been looking for. And then she goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Thank you. So, uh, I mean, to a point, I guess, but anyway, I know I did, there's so much to say and learn from that maybe you didn't want to tonight. I'm happy to meet for coffee or even exchange emails or uh, find me on Facebook. Um, that's a place where a lot of people find me and we can, what book was that or what do you think about this? And I'm, I'm, I'm very open to those conversations. Many thanks to Steve for sharing this experience with us. If you'd like to learn more about his work, 
you can check out Hope and Focus Photography at stevepavey.com. That's all one word, and Pavey is spelled P-A-V-E-Y. For more information on Central Kentucky Surge, you can go to our Facebook page, C-K-Y-S-U-R-J. We meet the second Tuesday of every month at 6 p.m. at Wild Fig Books and Coffee. Everyone is welcome. Feel free to email us at ckysurj at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. Tune in next week to hear from Kentuckians for the Commonwealth.